Hey, this is Jim, pastor of Decided Church, and this is our podcast. Thanks for listening. We hope the sermon you're about to hear just blesses your heart and really encourages you. If you don't mind, subscribe. That way you'll get instant notifications every time a sermon is uploaded. And by all means, if you're feeling led to give, click on the giving link and there'll be more directions to follow. God bless. Enjoy the message. Well, I dressed up for you guys today, pulled out these old duds. No problem. Anytime, right? But we begin a brand new sermon series this morning, brand new sermon series. And the reason I'm excited about this one is we've never really done anything like this before. Really, Jim? You guys begin brand new sermon series like every month. What are you talking about? Well, this one, see, Will and I, we're usually, we're usually racing through books. We're racing through series at breakneck speed. We're giving you quick overviews. We're, we're giving you three quick points and we're moving on. We, we do a lot of book studies and, and topical studies where we have to move fast. And uh, for, for this season, for, for this series, we're slowing it way down, way down. In fact, this series, if you know anything about the Beatitudes, which you do, uh, we're covering only one verse a week. That's it. One verse a week. In fact, we're only covering one sentence a week. Most of these verses are only one sentence, literally one thought. And so we get the opportunity, once in a lifetime opportunity, to pump the brakes, just take one thought and really go deep, really uncover some truth there. Anybody ready for that? I'm kind of tired of moving at breakneck speed. I don't know about you. Corona has just like slowed me down and I just want to like put it in park a little bit and just as the old Baptist preacher would say, let the wild hog eat. You know what I mean? Just put it in part and let me eat. So that's where we are. That's what we're going to do. If you are uh, brought your Bibles or your phones this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. And what I have today, what I have uh, for you today is a little bit more serious and um, in fact, if you haven't managed to get your feathers ruffled on the way in, let me help you. <laughs> because I think everybody is going to be a little bit convicted by the sermon today. I think you're going to stub your spiritual toe. And that's okay. It's okay to be convicted. It's okay to get emotional. It's okay to have a moment with God. I think we've kind of lost that a little bit. We're, uh, we're so conditioned and so programmed to keep it all together, keep the keep the mask on, keep the shield up, and, and walk out the same way you can't come in, unaffected, un- unchanged, unmoved, unriled. You know, we've, we've programmed our, our minds to just be strong, keep it all together, but if, if that song and that worship set didn't move you emotionally, and this sermon doesn't move you and convict you, we need to have a talk. <laughs> we, need to, we probably need to get together a little bit. But um, so, so this message was, is convicting me. I, I, I hope it'll convict you. Um, but I hope more than anything that it's not controversial. Convicting, yes. Controversial, no. Because after all, this is Jesus's first sermon. This is his first sermon. So a little background on the Beatitudes How many even know the Beatitudes are part of a larger sermon that Jesus preached entitled the Sermon on the Mount? How many of you know were raised 
reciting the Lord's Prayer? Anybody? I see a lot of hands. All right, then you know, you know the Sermon on the Mount because the Lord's Prayer is part of this sermon. How many of you even know one or two of these Beatitudes? Blessed are dot, dot, dot. You know a couple? Then you know the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of the most well-known passages in the Bible. No, no, no. This is one of the most well-known Christian thoughts or Christian uh, ways to live in the Bible. No, no, no. This is actually one of the most well-known pieces of literature in the world, the Sermon on the Mount. One of the most well-known pieces of literature in the world. Now, we know the Bible is not merely literature, but that's a pretty powerful statement. Even skeptics, even atheists and agnostics who want nothing to do with Christianity, they reject God, they reject the idea of a God who can save them. Even the atheists and the skeptics and the agnostics acknowledge that while they do not receive the Bible in its entirety, they can support the Sermon on the Mount because it, it projects a healthy way to live. So we know that this first sermon of Jesus must be pretty significant if even the haters are saying, ah, okay, there's a little value there. I guess we'll take that part, but we're, trust me, we're rejecting the rest. The Sermon on the Mount contains the Lord's Prayer. It contains the Beatitudes. And part of its draw, part of its allure is that it is very poetic. It's very soothing to read. It has a cadence to it. And so a lot of literary scholars study the Sermon of Jesus. But here's what I want you to know out of all those facts about the Sermon on the Mount, about the Beatitudes, which is basically Christ's introduction to his sermon. Here's what I want you to know. These were the first words from God in over 400 years. From the prophet of Malachi, God had been silent until the coming of Jesus, and sure, he might have said a few things in the temple as a boy, and now he's beginning his earthly ministry, and one of the first things he does at the beginning of his earthly ministry is sit down on a mountain in Galilee and preach a sermon. It has been radio silence from God to the children of Israel for 400 years. Can you imagine not hearing from your parents or your spouse or your kids for 400 years, if you're even alive then? Been 400, it's been generation after generation after generation of silence. Nothing from God. No words. How am I doing? Am I good with you, God? Am I not so good? Are you about to wipe us off the face of the earth? Or, or is it the fact that we're doing pretty okay, therefore you don't need to intervene, you don't really need to say anything because we're doing all right? The children of Israel have heard nothing for 400 years. And these are the first words of Jesus found in the Sermon of the Mount. From a 10,000 foot view, sounds great. Just read it. Just take, just take a few days this week and read the whole sermon that Jesus preached. Sounds pretty good. It, it, sounds, it sounds great from a 10,000 foot view. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who mourn, 
Blessed are those who show empathy, and it sounds all good. In fact, it kind of it pushes a lot of buttons that we're in socially and culturally right now. But here's what I want you to know from the studier, <laughs> from the workman's point of view. When, when you zoom in, when you actually begin dissecting his words, when you begin understanding what Jesus is saying, guys, the Sermon on the Mount is awful. You know why it's awful? It's impossible. It's impossible to live by. How? We can all work on our meekness. We can all work on our peacemaking. We can all work on being poor in spirit. Okay, fine. How about the part where it says in just a few verses, even if you lust, have a lustful thought, you're guilty of the sexual sin? Guilty. How about the part where it says, uh, even if you think an angry thought towards somebody, you're guilty of murdering them? You still doing okay? How about the part where it says divorce is unacceptable and unlawful in God's kingdom? You still doing okay? The Sermon on the Mount sets the standard. You know what the Sermon on the Mount is, put simply? It's, it's Jesus saying, you remember, the, you remember the old Mosaic law that you guys have all memorized and you grew up studying? You know the old Mosaic law? I'll match you and I'll raise you one. That's the Sermon on the Mount. He elevates the standard because where the law judged action, the Sermon on the Mount says, Jesus, I've come to not only judge your action, but also the motive behind it. So even if you did perform correctly, I bet your motives weren't right. Sermon on the Mount's impossible. It's absolutely dismal. We can't do it. It's God saying, I'll match you and I'll raise you one on the Old Testament Mosaic law. It's, it's tough. The Beatitudes, the part that we're studying, see, we're not even getting into all that. That's the weeds. We're just covering the first 11 verses of the Beatitudes, the happy part. And even the happy part is not so happy. You'll understand. It's okay. You'll understand in a few minutes. The Beatitudes are the first 11 verses of the sermon, and it's his introduction. The Beatitudes, that word means the blessings. Another way that I've heard commentators put it is, these are the attitudes that you should be. Very simple. Everybody can take that away, right? These are the attitudes that you should be. So let's read about it. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to read Matthew chapter 24 to give us a little context, and we're going to read through chapter 5, verse 12. It sounds awful. It's not awful. Most of these verses are one sentence. Read with me, starting in verse 24. This is talking about Jesus, the beginning of his earthly ministry. It had been silent for how many years? 400 years. And now we hear from God. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick. Those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, those who were oppressed by demons, those having seizures, the paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth. And taught them, saying, remember, first words from God in over 400 years. What did he choose to say? Blessed 
are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In our verse today, Matthew 5, 3, simply just one verse, one concept, one thought for us today. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, if, if you could meet us in this place and your Holy Spirit could illuminate your text and God teach us the state of affairs. God, show us the state of affairs of the Christian religious church in America. That our eyes would be open to see what it really means to be poor in spirit. We would all be better for it. We would all come, we would all become closer to you. We would all have more of an empathetic spirit. We would be repentant and we would be humbled in your sight. Do that today, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It says in verse 1 of chapter 5 seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down, his disciples came to him. I just want to be clear about one thought. This is Jesus not preaching to the whole crowd. The Bible makes it very clear that those disciples, those, those close to him, those who followed him, came up a little closer, and it's as if Jesus put his arm around them, and he's saying, look out on the crowds. You see all these people who are following me? They want to see a sign. They want to see a wonder. They want to see a healing. They want to see me feed 5,000. This is Jesus having an intimate conversation with those close to him about the crowds. This is him, if you will, discussing humanity. This was him gathering his close followers and looking out on the masses saying, here's our message. Do you see these people? This is our mission. This is what they need to hear. This is how they need to see us live. This is what they need to hear us talk about. This is the standard. You know what he's doing? If we were to put this in business terms, he's creating culture for his team. He's, giving, he's given a new culture, a new standard for living. And he was warning against typical natural feelings that would arise from dealing with people. He was giving them his wisdom. He's saying, listen, you're going to be lifted up in pride. Don't be proudful. You're going you're to adopt somewhat of an authoritarian mindset. Don't do that. You're going to lack empathy. You're not going to be humble. You're going to have misplaced motives. You're not going to be searching after the right things. You're not going to be, you're going to be tempted to take sides. And so this is Christ saying... Humanity needs us. Humanity needs the gospel, this world, these masses. They need to hear the truth. They need to hear the gospel, and it starts with us. How are we going to act? How are we going to conduct ourselves? How do we operate in this new system of being a Christ follower? That's what he's saying. 
And by the way, the first words of God after 400 years from the mouth of Jesus are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And blessed doesn't just mean happy. We don't even have the right word for it in the English language, really, but it means more like favored. Not simply happy, not simply uh, the emotions of feeling happy, but more of a favored by God. Favored are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like I said, it seems calming and it seems reassuring at the first glance, right? The first words of God over 400 years, and I'm, I'm kind of treading lightly because I don't know how I stand with God. And Jesus says, blessed, favored are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can either take that one of two ways. Either that is comforting or it's condemning. Those are the only two options, and there's no middle ground. Those words to you are either comforting or condemning, and here's why. When we look at it closer, when, when these words really strike your heart, they're ultra convicting and isolating. Because Jesus' first words here separate Christianity from every other religion. Here's what I mean. No other dogma, no other religious system, no other, no other study, no other practice, whether it's Eastern culture or some, some New Age philosophy or somewhere in between. No other dogma embraces helplessness and humbleness to reach status with God. Name another religion, name another system that says, no, 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 less of you. You're helpless, you're nothing, you're poor. And, the, and the, the closer you get to the beggar mentality, the closer you get to God. That is found in no other teaching of any other religion. See, most of them say, earn, right? Most of these other philosophies and religions say, earn, work, grow, prove, become. Endure, strive, deny yourself. Christianity says, receive, trust, believe. And my favorite one, rest. So what's Jesus saying? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do I have to be poor? To get to heaven? Do I have to be poor to get to heaven? That's essentially the question for today. Before I answer it, let me give you some facts about the gospel that you know, but we all need reminded of. Heaven isn't a negotiable deal where you get to offer what you bring to the table in exchange for being right with God. That's a middle-class mindset. There's a word for it. Maybe you can help me with it. It starts with an R and sounds kind of like engine. Religion. The middle-class mindset is religion. It's saying... Oh man, I know, I know, I know I need Jesus. I know I if, of all people I was brought up in church. I know about Jesus. I know his love for me. I know he died on the cross for me. 
but you got to admit, I have some things to offer. If I use my giftings and my talents to give back to the church, maybe we can work out a little negotiation. I get God's favor, I get heaven, I get righteousness, and I give back to the church a little bit through my gifts and my talents. That's a middle-class mindset. That's religion. The middle-class mindset does not need saving. They're looking for religion. They're looking for a contract with someone who's interested in what they have to offer. They're looking for someone who's interested in what they can bring to the table. The middle-class mindset cannot be saved unless they realize that they are no better than the poor. You must take on a poor in spirit, attitude, repentant posture to get into heaven. Here's why. The gospel only appeals to people who are poor enough to recognize their need. Poor people realize that they need life change. Poor people realize that they need a chance that they cannot provide themselves. Can I get an amen? Heaven is only for those who have nothing to bring. They need a gift. They are desperate for grace. They are doomed without mercy. That's who heaven is for. Do I have to be poor to get into heaven? Yes, you do. You do. Let's not dilute the words of Scripture. Let's not water it down. Let's not try to make excuses or walk around it somehow. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Heaven is only open to poor. Middle class doesn't get in. The rich class doesn't get in. Why? They're looking for a negotiation. They're looking for a contract. They're looking for God to meet them in the middle, whereas the beggar says, I got nothing. I am spiritually bankrupt. I have absolutely zero to offer. Anything, anything, anything that I receive is going to be because it's a gift that I don't deserve, that I'm not worthy of, poor in spirit. Matthew 6.24 says this. By the way, this is the Sermon on the Mount still just a few verses later. And he comes back to the same verse and he expounds upon it in this part of his sermon when he says, No one can serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and religion. You cannot serve God and the American gospel. You cannot serve God and religion. You cannot serve God and yourself. Matthew 19. Same book, a few chapters later, Jesus says this. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier. Picture this. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Why, folks? Why is it hard, nearly impossible for rich people to get to heaven? Because they don't think they need saved. Because they think 
well, I've got this asset and I've got this asset and I'm a pretty good person. I'm a little messed up over here. I could use a little forgiveness, but overall, generally speaking, I think I got what it takes. It's the quickest way to hell. It really is the quickest way to hell. Here's the message God sent me to preach to someone today. For some souls here today in this room and many attending other religious services this morning, you think you are right with God. You think that you are saved and you have a place in heaven. You are not and you do not. But how? What are you saying? I grew up in church. I was taught the Bible from a child. I was brought up in a Christian home. Friends, this sermon is a referendum on the Christian church in America. The quickest way to hell is with a first-class ticket from the religious gospel. While not every church and not every pulpit stands trial to Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 3, let me be clear. The mainstream American church is not guilty of merely duping people into some watered-down version of Jesus. They are not guilty of simply airbrushing and spray-tanning the bloody gospel. No, we're guilty of catapulting souls, precious souls, on a collision course with their own eternal damnation. The American gospel is not the gospel at all. What is the American gospel, Jim? Please explain what you're talking about. Because I live in America. The American gospel is wealth, fame, power, influence, self-motivation, gimmicks, tips and tricks, cheat codes. The American gospel is religion. It's the unspoken attitude that God helps those who help themselves. Who's heard that? What we have done in this nation is we make Christianity in the 21st century look comfortable. We build massive megachurches sprawling hundreds of acres and dozens of campuses. We've decked out our buildings with all the trimmings and specs that handcuff our budgets. We've endorsed pastors to live lavish lifestyles to the point where now there's parody accounts making fun of how how much money pastors spend on their clothing and their shoes. You don't believe me? Check out preacher sneakers. We've desensitized our hearts to the hurting communities. Listen, listen, listen. We have desensitized our hearts to the hurting communities. By what? By by creating all these food pantries and, and soup kitchens and all these various 501c3s that comfortably keep the hurting at an arm length distance. convenient distance. We've opted for entertainment and concert-driven worship experiences over desperation to meet God in repentant humility. We've exchanged our altar calls and our invitations for motivational speeches. 
We've exchanged our altar calls for tips and tricks and self-help gimmicks. We've escorted the Holy Spirit right out the front doors to make more room for our social media presence, our service flow, and our videos. We have numbed our fear of a righteous God for quick hits and emotional highs of the diabolical version of God's love. Trust me when I say a lot of the worship songs about God's love have nothing to do with the love of God you read about right here. It's a, dia- it is a satanic version of God's love that just gets you a quick high, just emotional hit. And you're back to the same lifestyle. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time, when is the last time you spent your morning in church broken and convicted over sin and God's righteousness? And the only thing in between is the mercy and grace of God. What are you saying, Jim? Is there never a place to preach on attitude and perspective and mindset? Sure. There's a place for it. Drive an hour up the road. Our postmodern culture has neutralized the power of God by presenting it in a comfortable middle-class social club for entertainment, fashion, but mostly importantly, humanism. Humanism has indoctrinated the sermons of the 21st century American Christian church. Oh, just change your perspective. We're not thinking about it right. Elevate your thinking. Oh, have an attitude. Have a, have a shift perspective. How many sermons can you preach on about shift perspective and attitude change? It's not the gospel. It doesn't change lives. But they'll flood those churches. Why? Why do you see people flooding those churches? Why do you see those very churches having campuses everywhere? And... and, and all the high-tech equipment, because they're, they're literally getting people addicted to this emotional high, this satanic version of God's love that is not God's love at all. Because if you don't have God's wrath, there is no love. It's one of sensitive egos and calloused hearts. It's damning. Welcome to American Gospel Airlines, where you can fly first class to, oh, never mind the destination, because we're going to make sure that your experience is comfortable and customized to your preferences. Folks, it's the quickest way to hell. Why? Because we are really good at making people feel really good that they are really good with God. You want me to say that again? We are really good in the American 21st century postmodern church. In other words, America. We are really good at making people feel really good that they are really good with God. We need a little bit more of Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God, and a little bit less of, let me give you five tips this week so you can feel better about yourself and live an elevated week with a different shift, a mindset perspective, change. Can I call out a holy BS on that? It's BS.
Well, all I've given you up to this point is guilt. None of us feel too good about ourselves right now, do we? That's the thing about guilt, though. It, it's, it's not a good motivator. It doesn't, it doesn't do the job. Jesus wasn't a dealer in shame or guilt. Jesus was a dealer in hope. So what about this verse is hopeful because all I see is, all I see is when I studied this week, you know, all I saw in Matthew 5.3 was, man, this, this is a referendum on the Christian American church. This is, this is a referendum on, on the spiritual state of our churches. This is a referendum on the middle class mindset this, this verse is actually exposing a huge section of people who think they are going to heaven. They think they are saved people, but they have never humbled themselves. They have never repented. We have a whole group of churchgoers who's, who's on a first-class ride to hell. That's what I saw in Matthew 5.3. But that can't be all that's there. Because that's just shame. That's just guilt that leaves us without hope. The hope in Matthew 5, 3 is that maybe, just maybe a few of you related immediately to that verse. It wasn't like, oh, yes, let's have more. The, the, the way I get into heaven is by having more empathy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I need to have more pity for the poor around me. No, you are the poor. You are the beggar. And the only reason you're sitting in an air conditioning room with brand new chairs driving a nice car is because of the grace and the mercy of Jesus. You deserve nothing. You deserve hellfire hot damnation for eternity. And I'm not trying to sound like... I am. I am trying to sound like that. I am trying to sound like that. What's the hope? Where's the hope here? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, folks, the reason that there's hope in this verse is because the very man who was speaking the words, the very man who was speaking these words, the first words from God in over 400 years, had himself become poor in spirit so that he could offer you and I the riches, the heaven, the eternity. You don't believe me? Let me show you in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the what? For you know the what? Grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what grace means. It means getting something you do not deserve. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Folks, the hope in Matthew 5.3 is that Jesus became poor so that you could become rich. The only reason... The only reason, folks, that we have anything to all to boast or brag about, the only reason we have a leg to stand on, the only reason we can say with confidence that we have a relationship with God and a home in heaven when we die is because of the grace of the Lord Jesus who, for our sakes, though he was rich, became poor so that we could have this free gift, so that we could accept eternal life as a, as a, as a gift. 
Do you understand that? Spurgeon said, poor in spirit. The words sound as if they describe the owners of nothing, yet they describe the inheritors of all things. In conclusion, let me talk to those here today who have already identified with the poor in spirit. For you, there was no question that you belonged right here in this verse. Let me give you hope. See, being poor financially means that you've had an overwhelming burdens that drain you of your resources, whether it's debt or economic status or unexpected loss. Being poor in health means that you've had overwhelming, uncontrollable circumstances that have robbed you of your ability to live how you want to, whether it's deformity or age or disease or accidents, hereditary issues, immune system. Being poor in spirit is no different. Due to unforeseen and uncontrolled circumstances, you're in a state of low self-esteem. You're in a state of lack of confidence, depression, anxiety, worry, fear, or other emotional weights that make you heavy, spiritually speaking. Am I talking to anybody this morning? Okay. Maybe you grew up in a toxic environment with an abusive parent or step-parent. Maybe you were always told you were never good enough. Maybe you felt inferior to your peers your whole life. Maybe you're used to always taking the blame. Maybe you're experiencing the loss of someone or something. Maybe you feel like you can never get ahead. Maybe you feel like no one sees you or hears you. Maybe you feel like your stuff is just too embarrassing to share. Maybe you feel hopeless or entrapped in a situation that can't change. Maybe you feel you've lost trust in a close friend or family member. Maybe you've been burdened for someone else for a really long time. Maybe the same person keeps hurting you over and over, but you can't help but believe in them anyway. Maybe the events of our culture or our country have weighed you down. Maybe you just need help and you're not sure who to ask. Maybe a past mistake has handcuffs on your future. Whatever has weighed you down this morning or left you feeling drained like you're just hanging on by a thread, there's good news for you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. See, it's not hard for people. It's not hard for people who who find themselves in this description I just listed to know that they really need help from a Savior who came to do just that. The good news for everyone here today who's poor in spirit is that he didn't come just to help you. He did not come just to give you a hand. He did not come just to stay long enough for you to get up on your feet. He came to save you. He came to save you to the uttermost, completely, totally, and he's going nowhere. Jesus does all the work. The only proper response is a beggar on his knees who all can do, all you can do is receive the gift. All you can do is say thank you. All you can do is say, I believe. I, I, I take it by faith. Spurgeon said, everyone can start here. It isn't first, blessed are the pure. It isn't first, blessed are the holy or the spiritual or the wonderful. Everyone can be poor in spirit. 
Now what I have, or excuse me, not what I have, but what I have not is the first point of contact between a soul and God. Let me say that again. Spurgeon said, not what I have, not what I have, but what I have not is the first point of contact between my soul and God. Do you understand that, folks? With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to ask a question. I'm wondering who might need to be saved this morning. I'm wondering who has, who has been duped. And it's not even your fault. It's not even your fault. The church, America, has done a masterful job of disguising the gospel in a, in, in a load of health and wealth, prosperity, mindset, emotional garbage, self-help preaching that teaches you, you are totally good, folks. We're all writing first class. Isn't that what matters? Don't you want to be comfortable? Don't you want a church shop? Don't you want to pick out your church based upon customized preferences anyway? Don't you need it to meet your needs anyway? Why go to that small church down the road where they preach hard about sin and that hell is hot and damnation is real and heaven is a free gift from God? Why go to that church when you could just get that quick hit? Why, why not get just the emotional high so you can live feeling real good about yourself this week? Some of you guys in this room are not saved. Some of us have thought this whole time that it was Jesus plus what I bring to the table. Some of us this whole time thought, well, well yeah, Jesus, he plays a part. He died for me, but don't I, don't, I have to, don't I have to bring my resume? Doesn't he need to see what I can offer? Doesn't he need to know my gifts and my talents that I can offer back? No, you have none. You don't have any of that were it not for the grace of Jesus. Folks, you have nothing to bring to the table. And, in, and unless you can get there, unless you can become poor in spirit, you cannot be saved. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm just going to lead you in a prayer. A prayer of repentance, a prayer of humility, where you for the first time in your life recognize, I can do nothing because the one who was rich became poor for me so that I who am poor can become rich. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. For the first time this morning, I recognize it's nothing I can do. I accept what Jesus did on the cross to save my soul. I receive it as a gift. I receive it by faith. I'm not worthy of your love, but thank you for dying on a cross in my place. Thank you for this gift of salvation. Help me to live for you. In Jesus' name.
with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, you came in here with the spirit of religion. You came in here believing in the American gospel, but today you realize it's not you at all. It has nothing to do with you except for the grace of Jesus. If you prayed that prayer, just slip your hand up quietly. I don't need to, um, I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to bring you forward. I just want to know that you have received Jesus this morning. You are made brand new. Thank you. Thank you for everyone who's raising your hands. Praise the Lord. Praise Jesus Almighty. Folks, one more question and then I'll be done. Maybe you're here and it was no trouble at all. It was no trouble at all. That verse wasn't convicting in the slightest for you because you knew exactly where you belonged. You haven't doubted for a second that you're poor, that you have nothing. You came in here not burdened down with religion, but burdened down with shame, burdened down with guilt, burdened down with hell. You've been talked down to your whole life, burdened down with the abuse that you faced, burdened down with life, burdened down that you can never get ahead, burdened down with just the stuff of this world. And you're already desperate. You didn't have to have any preacher get up here and tell you to be desperate for God. You're down here begging. It was only a miracle that you walked through these doors because you're already hanging on by a string, by a thread. And these words were comfort to you because you already know you need a savior. You're already there. You already know it's anything that I get, anything that I receive today is gonna be a gift that I don't deserve. Can I see your hands as well? Amen. Folks, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Be encouraged. I don't know how long it's been since you've been broken in church before a God who is holy, who is wrathful, who is righteous, but who is also the one who became poor for you, the one who became sin for you, the one who became your shame and your guilt for you. And all that you can do this morning is come broken in, in, in a broken praise, in a shattered, broken praise, and say, I got nothing. I have absolutely nothing to offer, but I'm here. I'm here because of a Savior who loved me enough to die in my place, and I've believed in Him, and I need His help. Folks, salvation isn't just for the lost people. It's for you too. You've got a Savior who's, who's not just here for a handout. He's not just here for a quick fix. He's here for the long haul. He's here to save you to the uttermost. And if your life is in shambles right now, guess what? The situation is no different. You need to trust him. You need to believe in him. You need to put your faith in him this morning. Not to be saved, but because you are saved. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for the work that you're doing in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.